Welcome to the BioCharisma Podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Gardner. Today we have Eileen Mikusik of BiofieldTuning.com. Uh, she is the Biofield Tuner. Uh, you've heard me interview Chance Garten, and he's my local Biofield Tuner. And I've had one of the sessions uh, where essentially tuning forks are used in my Biofield to, to measure what's happening from a vibrational perspective. And I've listened to Eileen McCusick for about the last eight months with her little Sunday service that she does on YouTube. And I was just like, I need to go directly to uh, the horse's mouth with this one because uh, I can actually hear in the, her tone of voice, uh, the clarity in which uh, she's coming from. And she's definitely an expert in this field. In uh, this podcast, we're going to explore some of the implications of, of vibration and uh, even how this can be done in a remote in a remote way, like actually in, in a, in a non-local way and what that actually means. So I'm very happy to bring Eileen Mikusik to this audience and I hope you enjoy it. I'll see you on the flip side. All right. We're here with Eileen McCusick. How are you doing, Eileen? I'm great. How are you doing, Topher? I'm doing wonderful. I just spied this dodecahedron on the on, on your <laughs> excuse me. There, look at this. And you're saying this is how you explain the biofield. Let's no, get into this it. This is how I explain the biofield. But I will tell you something I realized about the dodecahedron. So I was contemplating it one day. And I realized that it was 12 five-sided pyramids that mm -hmm. all came to a point in the center. Yes. And I was like, five-sided pyramid? I've never seen a five-sided pyramid. So mm -hmm. I had a, a design file made and I had a bunch printed, 3D printed five-sided mm -hmm. pyramids and, uh, and even small ones. So this is a really interesting shape. When you hold it in one hand, it feels heavy. And when you hold it in the other hand, it feels light. And I had a whole bunch of them and my kids were like, couldn't deal with them. They're like, mom, you've discovered the forbidden shape. Like there's too much energy with those five-sided pyramids. Like you have to get rid of them. So I never did anything with the five-sided pyramids, but they are a powerful shape. And it is sort of odd to me that we mm -hmm. never see them anywhere, but they do come, they're extracted from the dodecahedron. So that was my inspiration for that. Do you know the do you know the domes that I build are actually they're they're a hemisphere that's formed from six pent six pentagons? Oh no I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah yeah. Yeah the the Japanese mathematician that figured it out, he was looking at mandalas and he was looking at a mandala that was based on five sides and he had the Jody Foster moment where he popped it up into three dimensions. And it works perfectly because you've seen soccer balls like growing up, they all had the the pentagons on the yeah. side that would form the soccer ball. Well, if you just cut that in half, that's your your dome. Nice. 
Yeah, yeah. That's really cool. I want to I want to see one and go in one. <laughs> I bet it's Yeah, I'll, I'll show some pictures while we go through, but I I didn't want I'm sorry I cut you off. I just got sorry. excited seeing that. <laughs> that is exciting. And then this is uh my my model when I'm talking about the biofield and how the biofield is a torus and how uh the the outer boundary of our field, right? It's a bubble, but the boundary isn't smooth. It's actually banded. And mm -hmm. our biofields have 12 bands. And so does this, actually. Physics toy has 12 bands. And how mm -hmm. they all flow through the central channel, right? So if this is the biofield, your body's in here. And in this biofield model, your body is actually inside your mind because your magnetic bubble, your electrical system is what we mm -hmm. call mind, conscious and subconscious. So, mm -hmm. uh, so that's why I have that there. And I have one more prop, actually, since we're sharing props. So I'm awesome. Grab it. I'll show it to you. Okay, so this is what's called an energy stick. And it doesn't have any batteries, but mm -hmm. it's got uh, circuits on the end. So when I hold one end, nothing happens. But when I complete the circuit, <laughs> mm -hmm. my body electricity makes it light up and make noise. Right. So this is really, you know, when I work with kids and stuff like that, I'm like, you're electric, see? <laughs> mm -hmm. That's literally, that's what I do as a polarity therapist. I complete the circuit. Any polarity therapist, that's what we do. And so through the trigger points, not just the trigger points, but through certain nexus points in the body, you can actually feel where there's a disruption in the channel, in the line of energy in the body. And then what what the polarity therapist is there to do is to actually just complete the circuit by providing ground. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I think that's what we do in biofield tuning too, although we don't necessarily use that language, but we definitely mm -hmm. create a grounding for people. Yeah. Yeah. Because the ground will take it all. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It takes it all. So that's that that was the whole point of it because I was actually brought to it by a a woman who professionally her whole profession she was essentially like a doula. She was a midwife, but she had this real like incredible way of just grounding out mothers to be. Especially like during that that as that portal opens as as she would say and um yeah, she was, I worked on her as a gift and she's like, oh, I didn't know you were a polarity therapist. I'm like, I didn't know I was one either. What is that? And then she turned me on to Dr. Randolph Stone. And then I, I come to find that, oh, that is just, that's just Ayurvedic massage. Like he just rebranded Ayurvedic massage, which the whole you thing was doing Ayurvedic massage, right? That's yeah. For about 10, for 10 years. And so it was it was kind of fun to hear all of the things that it was all of the conditioning that I had received in the East from a Sanskrit perspective being like essentially Americanized. And it, the terminology essentially went electric, like in polarity therapy, it went from, you know, talking about, you know, the Rajas or the fire or the, all, all these things that, you know, in the East is like a more elemental aspect to in the West, it was, it was more linked to an electrical perspective. So that's why I'm so turned on by what you guys do with looking at the body as, you know, just being part of the system, it, but the, the overall system is so much larger. Cause that's something that like any body worker, or any, any healer, anybody that has sensitivity, you can kind of, 
you just sense a person's presence. You can sense the the energetic patterns that are coming off of them. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what we do with tuning forks. The thing that's cool about tuning forks is that it actually makes those inaudible vibes audible. Mm. And, and the way that that works is if you think that the body, mm. right, everything in the body is in motion, anything in motion makes waves and waves propagate. And we all know we've all gotten a good vibe off somebody. We've all gotten a bad vibe. We've all gotten a sexy vibe, right? You know what mm. the vibes feel like. Um, or if somebody is like in pain, you can kind of sense that too. Mm -hmm. You can feel it, right? So the waves that our body makes are very high frequency and very low amplitude. So obviously we can't hear them. But a tuning fork, these aluminum tuning forks that I use, produce technically an infinite number of overtones and undertones. So the very high frequency, very low amplitude waves actually intersect with the waves coming off the body. And then that mm. information precipitates down through the octaves into the hearing range. So the mm. tuning fork literally allows me to hear the vibes that your body is giving off. And when you say hear it, is it more of a feeling hearing? Is, is it no. like a synesthesia? Like, no, what is it? it's a hearing. Like, I can hear it. No, so, so you think about it, like every single emotion that we feel it feels a particular way inside us. It has a particular waveform, shape to the waveform. So mm -hmm. when we experience fear, that waveform is like, do, 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 do. <laughs> and mm -hmm. when you get really scared, you shake because that waveform is moving your body. So mm -hmm. if you're feeling a lot of fear and in, in your heart, and I hold a tuning fork over it, we're going to hear that. Do, 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 in the mm -hmm. overtones like we will actually hear that frequency it's a lot like music it's how i discovered the anatomy of the biofield is that I, I every time i had my fork off somebody's left shoulder i would hear something that sounded like sad music right and if you and i mm -hmm. are listening to sad music i don't have to say tofer this song is sad because if like mm -hmm. uh i can tell right right we have an innate understanding of that sounds happy, that sounds sad, that sounds angry. And, mm -hmm. and so music seeks to approximate this language of the emotions, this vibrational language that the tuning forks just reveal, not just emotions, but like physical stuff. Like, for example, if I bounce sound off of your right shoulder and you have arthritis in this shoulder, the pingback I hear is gonna sound grainy. If you mm -hmm. don't have arthritis in this shoulder, it's that pingback is going to be clear and, and you would be able to hear that you would hear well that sounds green or if you have sharp pain here the tone's going to go sharp i see yeah i see that's wonderful so you're talking about i'm just going to get woo woo because that's the way i am you guys can do this remotely where technically the vibration that you're generating with your tuning for because you're like the, like if you talk to a physicist and they say, okay, there's a pressure wave, there's a a, a concussive um, vibration or oscillation that's going through a medium and that medium, medium is rarefying and compressing, but you can do it remotely. And I bet you with your level of expertise, you don't even need the tuning fork. <laughs> I like the tuning forks. Um... <laughs> but what I'm saying though is like, let, let's get woo. Like, 
so if you're say you're up there in the northeast of the United States and somebody's a thousand miles away from you, how is it that your tuning fork can actually pick up that body's resonant frequency in the different parts of it? I don't know exactly, but I do know that it's possible. Therefore, there has to be a natural law to explain it. You want to hear, you want to hear some woo? Sure. I mean, I have theories, right? I mean, I can give me, give, give me some of your theories, what I think my theories are. Well, one is, is that if I'm working with you in your biofield, okay, this is your biofield and, and I'm working with you and I'm accessing your memories because that's what I find in the biofield. I can read your whole life history like a book with my twin fork moving through your biofield. Okay, if you are out here, where do you end? Mm -hmm. Really, we don't, right? Because we're all connected to the essential fabric of life, to the ether. Fundamentally, everything, even though it appears solid, is spun light. So we're yes. living in a unified holographic environment where we are everything. Like we have a, a locus of awareness and a sense of self in this point, but mm -hmm. I contain everything and, and I am everywhere. Mm -hmm. So when I want to work on somebody 3000 miles away, it's like going in and like pulling a Google doc drive off the internet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> edit this file together now because it's available like the the akasha the ether like everything that ever is was or will ever be can be accessed right here yes yes that's absolutely what i have found to be true i'm glad i'm glad that i knew that we would be we'd be there at the same point uh i've just done a series of interviews where it's essentially the have you ever heard of what an incommensurate geometry is no there's only one of them and it's it's the it's the it's the phi ratio presented in a triangle in any way that you bisect that triangle oddly enough it, it likens back to your little dodecahedron that you have there is that whenever you actually bisect that triangle at whatever angle you bisect it you'll get equal segmentation forever and ever in either direction well that's pretty mind-blowing so so it's incommensurate because it's literally and by the way what's even more mind-blowing is that's how oxygen relates to hydrogen and you just said all of matter is just a, a spen essentially spun light and it, it's been proven the last few years that hydrogen is literally just if you're to take the coaxial circuit that light is of ether and 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 slow it down, that's what hydrogen is. And so to have that notion in hydrogen, you can look at every other element from that point on is just a a, a complication of hydrogen, right? So it's all light. <laughs> Sorry, guys, all light. it's all light. <laughs> it's all light. <laughs> True. But what's crazy is how it actually the geometry in which it interacts with oxygen is this incommensurate geometry. So imagine that our memory is in the new sphere. Like you, you brought up the Akashic record. That's just another way of saying it. Mm -hmm. And like, now we know that the, the actual thing, like if any of us have been dehydrated, you, you instantly like your memory goes, you know, down the toilet, like 
but you're hydrated, you're feeling good, you've been exercising, you got the, uh, the everything flowing in the body, you can access more because now all those geometries of the water molecules are all kind of resonating with each other. And now it's all kind of relevant to you <laughs> or relatable to you, right? It's just mind blowing that this is, it. it's coming down like the the vast, amazing amount of just sheer complexity can be reduced down to i i don't want to be reductive but it can be it, it can be held in such a simple thing and it links everything that's the thing is it's like it's literally like if you're looking for the link uh, like um i talk to a lot of people that are into saying that this is a simulation and my idea is more that this is this is you know God's hologram. <laughs> so it's not like some computer is simulating it. It's like the creator. This is how the creator creates. It's like boom, and it creates a pure light, and does it in a way that's so elegant and just so just. It's so humbling to even contemplate that. To just call it a mere simulation to me is kind of uh, it's it's too reductive. Yeah, I don't ever use that terminology, <laughs> right? I, I I often when referring to this, I call it a realm. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I think that's a, nobody can argue with that. I don't know what you yes. think it is, but it's a realm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's beautiful. So let's give people a little background to you because I've heard a bunch of your interviews. And I love your story because like you were pretty like you were a kick-ass corporate person, weren't you? Like you you had your own business in the sense like you were an entrepreneur and you were making it happen. You're still an entrepreneur. How did you get so woo? Like how did this happen? <laughs> well, I'm not woo, Dover. <laughs> I make everything scientific. <laughs> well, you're woo, like so. This is the woo that you're that you are. So I say woo like this because I'm a bridge between like the real woo and like the scientific people. And you know, there's a name for it. You know what we are? What are we? We're naturalists. Oh yeah, I'm a natural philosopher. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, of all the things that I've read, I'm like, oh, I think that suits me the best. You know, I'm just yeah, yeah. a human that's curious about life and how life works. Right. And I'm also curious about how to have the best experience I can. How can I be free of pain, free of da da da, da, da nonsense so that I can show up and live my best life, right? And and what are the hacks to do that? So that that's mm -hmm. really interested in human potential and health and like optimization of our day-to-day -day experience, right? Reducing suffering. Um, the way that I, I started a restaurant when I was 20 and it and it became extremely successful. And, uh, but it led to me working like hundred hour weeks on my feet, mm -hmm. like week after week after week. And I, and I really, at that time, when I was in my early twenties, I had no control around sugar. I was working with my two older brothers. So I was with like family and food. And then we had lines out the door, like all the time. Mm -hmm. So stress. And, uh, and I basically like just lived off sugar and caffeine and adrenaline. Mm -hmm. And needless to say, that's not a sustainable life path. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I really turned into burnt toast. I mean, I really like 
<laughs> I turned it on like I hated people, hated food, hated everything, and realized that I really needed to do something different than be in the restaurant business. Even though I'm a good baker, I'm a good cook, like I got a knack for it, but mm -hmm. it's just, it's a hard, it's a hard business. And I started reading nonfiction when I was about 18. Mm -hmm. Science and spirituality, health and human potential, uh, philosophy, you know, just really went on a deep dive. Um, because I was really messed up in the head. I, mm -hmm. I was, I was very damaged from my childhood, from my education. Uh, I'd had a you know a fair amount of trauma and difficulty, and was really pretty broken. And was managing my brokenness with brilliant compartmentalization and sugar. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, you know that's not sustainable. So I, I was trying to heal myself. I was trying to figure out what was wrong with me and how I could get well. And mm -hmm. uh, and you know, you're a researcher too. So you know how one topic leads you to the next and the next and the next. And my journey uh, led me to vibrational medicine. I think I read, I'm not a fan now, but I, at the time I was, uh, Deepak Chopra's book, um, Quantum Healing, I think it was. Mm -hmm. And I don't use the word quantum, but basically it introduced me to the idea that everything was vibration because we're raised in a materialistic world. You're like atoms, <laughs> the smallest unit of matter. You know, we definitely think, are raised to think chemically and mechanically. And so this idea that everything is vibration was, you know, I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool. And then I came across vibrational medicine. So this was back in 96. Um, vibrational medicine and and using color and light and music mm -hmm. right for for healing so i went out and i got every book i could find you know there was no amazon then it was like mm -hmm. stores and there wasn't a lot really back then to be found but i read everything that i could and of course it all resonated for me mm -hmm. uh, and then i got a catalog in the mail that had a set of tuning forks for healing in it and mm and I ordered them on impulse. And by this point, I had actually left the restaurant, gone to massage therapy for school for a year, and mm -hmm. then came back to the restaurant, but was doing like a little bit of massage on the side, because I was like, I gotta keep educating myself about the path that I'm really interested in, even while I'm taking care of this restaurant. Mm -hmm. So I had some massage clients that I asked if they would be guinea pigs and just let me you know, like I've got this tuning fork. Can I experiment on you with it? And they were mm -hmm. like, sure. <laughs> and uh, and so that's what I did. I just started experimenting. I just started playing because I mm -hmm. you know, so many people say to me, I can't tell you how many times people have said this to me. I have tuning forks, but I don't know what to do with them. I was like, I didn't either. <laughs> I just mm -hmm. started playing with them and they taught me so much, like so much that I didn't expect to learn from them because mm. i think it's really easy you hear tuning fork and it just sounds kind of woo woo and you're like whatever you know i mean even for years when i see other people who are sound healers playing tuning forks i'm like oh god that's just so woo woo and i'm like oh god i do that <laughs> like i'm mm -hmm. the woo <laughs> yeah, yeah. but but i couldn't i couldn't stay away from them because they were so intriguing and they were producing outcomes for people like the very mm. first person i used it on I made his shoulder pain go away and I didn't even know what I was doing and he didn't know what was going on. We had zero expectation, but I was just poking the fork around. I'm like, oh, it sounds kind of funny over the shoulder. He's like, well, that's where I have pain. I'm like, listen to this one. It doesn't sound funny. This one sounds funny. He's like, you're right. It does sound funny. So I just kept mm -hmm. striking it there until it didn't sound funny anymore. And then he gets up off the table. He's like, oh my God. He's like, all the pain is gone. I was like, really? <laughs> okay. 
And so that's how, you know, 28 years later, we have over 3000 biofield tuning students out in the world. Um, I've got a line of very expensive, very high quality tuning forks that I sell. I've written two books and a mm -hmm. master's thesis. Um, and I have a, a big team here in my office. It like turned into a mini empire. <laughs> I wasn't even planning on it. It just kind of took me down this road of exploration and discovery. But well, it's it was meant to be. Yeah, apparently. But you know, when I first started, because for years I just worked right over the body, because why wouldn't I? <laughs> I hold it over the body, and that's what I did. And actually, I did that for like 10 years. And I did it as a hobby. I mean, I so maybe one, two people a week for like 10 years. And then one day, completely by completely by accident, I discovered that there was stuff going on in the atmosphere around the body. You know, it wasn't mm. just like, oh, this shoulder hurts. Oh, yeah, it sounds funny. It's like, or, or it feels sticky or it's loud here or, mm. you know, just eight atonal differences going on that when I moved them around and straightened them out, they'd be better. But then I discovered the same kind of thing going on six, five, four feet away. And when I started working out in the field and I started really exploring the terrain, the sort mm -hmm. of sonic train it's like a it's like a whole world kind of hidden in plain view right this, mm -hmm. this is like this whole territory waiting to be explored and i discovered that there was a very specific anatomy and physiology to the field it's where our memories live and different mm -hmm. memories live in different places in different ways different emotions get stored in different areas um when i started playing out there my therapeutic outcomes became really dramatic like, like really dramatic. And a after a little while of working in people's fields, I was like, I feel like I have a bit of a moral obligation to bring this out into the world. Cause this is the kind of relief that people are looking for. You're in pain. You want to get out of pain. You're feeling anxious. You want to not be anxious. You're depressed. You, you know what I mean? And that was mm -hmm. what was happening it, with like everybody. And I was like, this is really cool, but it's really weird. Like I'm waving a teen fork around six feet off your body. Like, they're gonna like eat me alive. I go out in the world, I'm like, I'm gonna do work six feet away and cure your anxiety. Like it seems so fruity, right? So that's why I decided to go to college as an adult. And I ended up writing a, an award-winning master's thesis called Exploring the Effects of Audible Sound on the Human Body and Its Biofield. Cause I realized that in order to get it to people and help to relieve their suffering, I had to understand it and describe it scientifically. Yes. So, so that is a big part of, of what I've done, sort of discovering the torus shape and, uh, you know, the whole electrical system of the body that we're not taught about and how our memories are stored here. You know, there was a, there was a lot to figure out and mm -hmm. then to still right to make it like really easy for people to understand so that they're like, Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I get that. So our conversation that we were having last week, um, you said that those, like that Taurus thing that you have in the back there, you said that you could feel those 12 distinct bands. And that surprised me to hear that because in my mind's eye, it wouldn't be that distinct. Like the, I would think that there would be more bands or like it would be more of like, it's almost like a pumpkin. Like the the way I feel it is like if, if you had like a really big, fat, wide pumpkin and you were to walk through the skin of that ethereal pumpkin, it's almost like 
smooth ridge, smooth ridge, smooth ridge like that. And so would you mind describing like how you came across these 12 separate bands? And are they always like if a person is facing forward, how how are those bands delineated? Are they like literally at 30 degrees? Like you got the plant off to come to. Um, okay. So you can imagine that our field extends six feet, right? Six feet to the front, sides, back, about two feet above and below. And so what I what I found, honestly, the, the revelation about the 12 bands first came to me in a, in a meditation. And I'm not even a meditator. Like, I don't really meditate. I hang out with sound, and it quiets your mind and connects you to God. <laughs> like, that's, mm -hmm. that's well, I don't really need to sit. But I was having a moment where I was sitting, just being with my own field, and I saw them. Like, I just, I saw them. And it was like this sort of like, aha, like, oh, of course, it's banded. Like, of course, it's not smooth, like an apple, it's banded like a pumpkin. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to, well, then I looked more deeply into them. And I realized that each of the 12 bands was comprised of 12 strands, like fiber optic. Remember those fiber mm -hmm. optic lamps when we were kids? Like, like fiber optic strands. So what it does is it creates a spiral of 144 strands going mm -hmm. through your central channel. And that's sort of like 100, like other people are hip to this. They're like 144 strand DNA. Where does that even come from? That that idea is really the, the, the light of our field, like in these bands. Mm -hmm. Right? Does that make sense? I mean, it's mm -hmm. it's not something I talk about a lot, uh, so I'm not as fluent with it as I am with other things. But once I realized that that there were twelve bands, then I decided I wanted to investigate them. And so I worked with a friend, and we did it at a distance. So he was mm -hmm. sitting in his home in North Carolina, and I imagined that he was sitting in a chair in the middle of his Taurus and I just started going through the the outer edge of the field with my fork sort of intending to look for where those bands were right because in biofield tuning when you come in you find the edge of the field and you can feel it because it's got more electric charge just like mm -hmm. people do with dousing rods right? right where you find the edge of the field if you had a set of dousing rods and I had a tuning fork we'd find the edge in the same place mm -hmm. the same kind of phenomenon and my son, when he was six, I was teaching him how to do this. And uh, I said, Cassidy, how, how does it feel? How can you tell that you've hit the edge of the field? And he said, the fork gets more vibrating. And that's exactly mm -hmm. what happens. Fork gets more vibrating. There's more energy there that it's interacting with, right? So you can tell when you hit the plasma membrane of the biofield, you bump up against it. So same thing. Now I'm, I'm looking for the band, same way. I'm just coming in. I'm like, oh, mm -hmm. there it is. Fork got more vibrating. Like there's a band right there. Mm -hmm. And and so the person that I was working with was very self-aware, very somatically intelligent. And so he, whenever I hit a band, I would hold a fork in it. So I was curious. I'm like, do they run down? Do they run up? Do they mm -hmm. run both ways, right? And so mm -hmm. what we found in his field was that he had five bands that ran down, five bands that ran up, and two bands that ran both directions which was mm. really interesting, but that allowed for it to be up, down, up, down, up, down, both directions, up, down, up, down, up, down, both mm -hmm. directions. So it kind of worked. 
So I was also curious because what you have here is that 12 around one symbolism that we mm -hmm. see everywhere. So the 12 disciples of Christ, the 12 gods of the Roman pantheon, the 12 cranial nerves, the um, 12 knights of the round table, the 12 houses of the Zodiac. Mm -hmm. And so we were, we were trying to feel into each area and be like, is there an element? Is there a house associated with it? You know, like what, what's mm -hmm. going on in here? But then recently um, I started working with an apprentice and he has been an astrologer for 30 years. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and he's a really good tuner. So he's a combination of a really good astrologer and a really good tuner. And mm -hmm. so I had the idea, and I don't remember exactly where this came from, to have him take my chart and overlay it into my field. So he is in Rotterdam. So he laid out a 12 foot diameter circle. He divided it into 12 segments. Right. He opened up my chart because he's read my chart a few times. And then he, as a tuner, went around with the tuning fork on like the, you know, the in from the inside and and read my chart. And he could I could feel every time he went into a different house, every time he, between bands, I was like, mm -hmm. oh, I feel that in my third eye. And he's like, oh, that's related to this planet. Da, da, da. I'm like, I feel that in my heart. Every time we changed houses, I felt it very distinctly in some place in my body. And like in my ninth house, I got a ton of planets, right? And so we got us into the ninth house and there's like- Imagine that, on. imagine that. <laughs> you with a lot going on in the ninth house. Like that's a, that's a pretty obvious one. Wait, well, tell people what the ninth house is about, Chris. Ninth, ninth house rules higher learning. It rules travel. It's the higher mind. So third, it's it's the higher octave of the third house. So third house is how you communicate, how you listen specifically. So how you listen is how you learn. But it's usually on the mundane level. When you start to get to the ninth house, you're now dealing with the more expansive aspect of your learning capacity. Imagine that, like the biofield is like the expansive, you know, connection interface with the Akashic record. Like that is like you could say the biofield, like the perimeter of the biofield, the perimeter of your sensors, the um the idealized aspect of Mercury is exalted in the ninth house. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I definitely have a party going on in my ninth house. And it was so obvious to both of us. Like he could feel everything. Mm -hmm. um, he could, he said, I can feel your natal chart and I can feel the transits that are happening. So basically what this means is, you know, when we think about astrology, you're like, oh, the stars are way up there and the planets, like how on earth could they be affecting us? But they're imprinted in your field. Like you live inside your skin your zodiacal chart yes you do you live inside you, you, of it you it's, are the you are the axis mundi yeah you are the axis mundi and so we even had some i don't know if it was with you a few weeks ago we were talking about a fuchsius right yes As the, the 13th constellation and how you were talking about how it's like the north star and it's like the axis and i was like well that 12 around one creates 13 Right? right. So, so is this like the central channel of the 12 around one? Well, Ophiuchus is the higher aspect of, of Scorpio. Mm -hmm. So when you see the luminaries, 
that are considered Ophiuchus, they're just right above Scorpio. And there used to be, it used to be Ophiuchus, Scorpio, and Libra were all one constellation known as the Phoenix. And so it's, you know, throughout the years, it's gotten a little bit more and more precise. And, and Ophiuchus is just the, it's, if the way I read it when I'm reading people's charts is Ophiuchus is if, if you can only really get to your highest self by going through the depths of Scorpio, Ophiuchus opens you up to the higher self because you've actually you've you've gone through the hard work of Scorpio. Mm -hmm. Like Scorpio is Persephone. It is that energy that takes you into your own personal hell and resistance. And then you go through that and as as it's represented in the luminaries, it you get through that and now you're on the other side and because you had the courage to face your fears, now you're worthy. You're like actually worthy of wisdom. Because hmm. one of the reasons why we incarnate is because our soul actually needs courage. <laughs> it's like one of the only reasons. Like we need to gain, we need to gain courage. And so Ophiuchus is is almost like the the benefit of having courage. And then it's there's this whole very old European, like Eastern European lore around Ophiuchus essentially opening you up to the constant the inner the inner ecliptic constellations so like when you look at the sun like when we're doing a, a casting a chart for somebody we're essentially just saying all these are the sun-kissed areas of the sky and the sun is literally a big magnifying glass for all those constellations that are behind it but there's a whole like opus of information dealing with all the constellations that go towards the, the pole star. And Ophiuchus, the reason why the Catholic Church took it out <laughs> was because Ophiuchus literally is like pointing to the center. It's pointing to the North Pole. It's like, hey, the real juice, the, the center is the truth, like there. Yeah. And then it got taken out because anything yeah. with truth gets taken out. I mean, I just discovered recently that there is a, a metal called Electrum, which I have never, never heard of that. Heard of. I mean, I've never yeah. heard of Electrum. I go and I look it up as, and it is a natural alloy that's gold and silver and copper and in different deposits, it's in different amounts. And mm -hmm. it was, uh, it's, I mean, those are all conductive, right? Mm -hmm. And that, they used it in in ancient Egypt for drinking vessels and for jewelry mm. uh, and the first coins, the first sort of metal coins were made from electrum. And so wow. we learned about gold and silver and copper, but nobody ever told me about electrum, but it's a naturally occurring like it occurs naturally. I mean, you can also make it. You can, you know, make it with different mm -hmm. uh, parts, but uh, that was how I felt when I discovered plasma back in 2009. I'd never heard of plasma before. Mm -hmm. Plasma is electric and illuminated. Mm -hmm. the, the whole sort of electric aspect of our bodies and our environment um, is hidden. 
right? All the juicy stuff is hidden, which is what sends people like you and I, I'm like, and they go yeah. find the truth, wherever it is, the illuminated truth that's been hidden. It's amazing. The, the plasma, I have to say too, like the, a lot of the people that I studied in the early 2000s, they were alluding to the superfluid of ether all the time. And it just made so much sense to me. Like, of course, there there is a medium. It's not that, like, in existence, there isn't just nothing, <laughs> you know? And this, this etheric medium actually being that which allows for light to occur made a ton of sense to me because... I remember as a kid, like in, in physics, like being like, well, photons, wait a minute. Like, why aren't there like, like photons, a particle, like I've never seen there being like a collection of photons on the ground underneath a light. Like that doesn't make any like, and then I remember thinking about conductors back in the day and I was like, okay, so you're saying that an electron actually moves down a, a piece of metal, a conductor, and then it comes and somehow does this work magically over there. It's just like, I just trusted it because it was coming from authorities and I've just felt like I was stupid. And then so coming across the, the giants of the late 1800s where they're like, no, that, that's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> I finally was like, oh, I'm not an idiot. <laughs> I, I just thought I wasn't smart enough to understand, you know, modern electrical theory or whatever. And then the whole notion of ether and 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 it's uh, you know, the fourth state of matter, which is this plasma that you're talking about, and how it transitions from the etheric body to what we would consider the material body through this this um beautiful electrified medium that we now know as plasma i mean i mean i'm i was right there with you like it's just like it, it just opened the doors to everything it opened the doors to everything i mean it really changed my life because even though you know i started with the self-help when i was 18 and um in 2009 i was i was 40 and i'd mm -hmm. i'd been trying to solve these problems i was stuck in poverty consciousness I was overweight, I was in chronic sort of low-grade pain and inflammation. I was fighting with my husband all the time. My kids drove me nuts. I was just like, I'm not living my best life. I'm not fit, I'm not healthy, I'm not rich. And I have spent thousands of dollars and thousands of hours reading the books, taking the courses, you know? And I'm like, I'm still stuck. Like, obviously I'm missing something. Mm -hmm. And when I discovered plasma, and, the, and it was weird the way that I discovered it, because I was gearing up to start working on my master's thesis and trying to figure out how I was going to take waving tuning forks around people and turn it into an academic treatise. And my son came to the table, dinner table, and I, I, he said, did you know that there's a fourth state of matter called plasma? Because I had helped a friend move and she gave me a bunch of books, science books, and it was Quinn's birthday. So I was like, here's a bunch of science books. And he was like reading all through them. And he's like, you know, and I was like, solid, liquid, gas, 
no, <laughs> how did I miss all state of matter? And then when I went and I started researching it and I was like, oh my God, I'm coming across stuff that says the universe is 99.999% plasma. It's like, how have I not learned about this if it's so ubiquitous and it's everywhere? Mm -hmm. And then like lightning is a plasma and, you know, sparks are a plasma and the sun is a plasma, like in my, in my electrical system and my own body is a plasma. Right. Mm -hmm. And then I discovered Gerald Pollack, fourth phase of water. Like there's mm -hmm. like, it's everywhere. And, uh, and then I just, and then ether, right? So adding, adding two more states of matter to mm -hmm. my cosmological story is what gave me the tools I needed to solve all those problems. Mm -hmm. Like I solved yeah. all the problems. Now <laughs> I don't have any of those problems anymore because, uh, because I almost doubled <laughs> the states of matter available to me to solve problems with. Definitely. And I also discovered that there's like, two more um, forces of nature that we never learn about, right? We never, we hear all about entropy, like everything's mm -hmm. falling apart, it's all going down. <laughs> um, but we never learn about the opposite, which is called negative entropy. Neg entropy. Yeah, neg entropy. I'm like, this is the force that allows me to have grown babies in my belly. Like I'm not calling it negative entropy. <laughs> like what mm. kind of nonsense term is that? And so I wrote in a notebook when I was taking notes for my thesis, I'm like, we need a better word for negative entropy in like giant caps. Cause I was like, I'm not using this term. It's just not right. Cause it's the force that brings everything together. You know, the fact that life, even that God brings everything into creation. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's negative entropy. I'm like what? <laughs> so I ended up at a conference sitting down with a fellow named Claude Swanson who wrote an incredible book that you would really appreciate. I've heard that name before. Life Force, The Scientific Basis. It's like an 800 page book that completely, I read it twice while I was working on my thesis. It's got so much stuff in, introduced me to Schauberger, like so, mm -hmm. so much juice in that, in that book. They're kind of hard to get, but worth it. Um, okay. Yeah. So I met him, Claude Swanson, and this other fellow by the name of Dr. Carl Merritt, who became a, a mentor to me. And the, I got to sit with them at lunch at this conference, and I'm going through my notebook and I'm asking them questions. And I get to that page and, and I said, oh, we need a better word for negative entropy. And Carl said to me, oh, there is one. He said, it's syntropy. Nice. And I was like, oh, thank God. Okay, I was like, okay, I'll use that word, syntropy. Syntropy, the creative force that like the world is, the universe is not obeying this law of thermodynamics that says it's all fizzling out. It's no. not like tree no. falls down in the forest and then new trees grow up. Like syntropy and entropy are continually dancing together um, in the, the perpetual motion machine that life is. And, yes, uh, and syntropy is actually like, it's actually much more efficient than entropy. You know, and this is what Schauberger was really big in showing is that, you know, you could look at entropy as being like the centrifugal aspect of nature, but nature in general is centropic in the sense that it, it condenses, inf it, it condenses information and energy centripetally into our body. And you can actually feel that if you're ever in like a, in a pranayama uh, bender, or you've like really gotten into your fitness after, let's just say like after a month of like really rigorous practice, you can start to feel like the, that there's a tether 
in that tether, you know, there's all different names for it in different traditions. But the best way you could say that that's that syntropic, you know, like condensate coming down and into the body and just animates and like enlivens and invigorates. And then you can feel it like when you're dissipated. Like I'm sure you've had times where like you said, like you're all burnt out on sugar and, you know, pleasing others and all the rest of it. It's just like, that's this, that's the entropic centrifugal. That's like the energy just going out and out and out, but there's nothing like, at least from the, the mind's uh, egoic perspective, there's nothing coming in to reinvigorate the system. Yeah, I actually had a, an experience of that last week. I did a, a one day, 23 hour, 20, yeah, 20, 21 hour round trip to New York City. So I'm in Vermont. I flew to New York. I sat on the runway for two and a half hours because it was snowing. Uh, I got mm -hmm. to New York. I had to be busy in New York all day. And then I flew home and I had another delay. I didn't get home till midnight. So it was like this really crazy long journey into New York City and back. And the next day I felt exactly that. I felt blown out. I was like, <laughs> and like that, that nice feeling of like, mm, was, you know, it was gone. I had, I had, I had too much entropy going on in my system. Mm -hmm. um, but luckily I called my apprentice and I was like, I'm all blown out from this New York trip. Fix me up. And mm -hmm. he did. He gave me a remote tune up. And then by the afternoon, I felt good again. So, uh, so biofield so tuning increases centropy in your system. Oh, I, I mean, you're proof in the pudding. Like, it's a very obvious thing that it works. So when you're having to talk to other PhDs or you're talking to people that are more in the materialist mindset, what is the verbiage that you use to explain how you could actually do a remote tuning session? Because playing devil's advocate, if you were to say, okay, there's compression and rarefaction of of they're not going to believe in ether but if you say if there's compression and rarefaction of the of the medium that we're in let's let's just call it air for you know whatever for ease how how do you explain distance tuning like what what what's the verbiage that works i can't explain distance tuning without the ether it's resonance in the ether it's all okay one. I mean, it, you, you have to put the ether back into the cosmology or mm -hmm. there's no point in us having a conversation. Like right. if you're not willing to accept that it's all one, then right. I'm not going to waste my time talking to you about this. Um, like I don't, I don't, if people are that closed minded, but generally I find when I talk to people about this work, uh, like I've converted many husbands that have made wives very happy. <laughs> There's a lot of couples out there where Good on you. like Reiki or energy healing and, you know, husband's a dude and he's like, what the heck is this woo woo stuff? Um, and uh, I recently had a conversation that went kind of like this. I'm like, I'm saying to the guy, okay, well, do you agree that your body has electric current in it? Mm -hmm. And he said, he said, yeah, yeah, but it's really weak. And I was like, okay, that's fine. But you agree that you have like, okay. And then I said, now, do you agree that anything that has electric current running through it has a magnetic field around it? Cause we learned that in grade school, right? And he's like, yeah, okay. Uh, everything has a magnetic field around it. I was like, so the human body is no different. It has electric current running through it. It has a magnetic field around it. He's like, 
he's like, yeah, but, but it's really weak. And I said, well, that's why they call it subtle energy. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. it's weak, but it's there. Right. And like, so this is just like in 30 seconds of conversation, you can't argue with the fact that like your heart's beating, your brain's thinking like, yeah, you got electricity going on there. Anything's mm -hmm. got a magnetic field. Like, where's the argument? There's no argument to have here at all. So Were people you will get the electricity in the body thing very quickly. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of interesting things about magnetics and electricity. Like I've been studying this alternative way of actually looking at electromagnetics and, and bio biomagnetics, because there's this whole uh, school of, of bioelectricity like the people that are into um, looking at some of the alternative technologies that don't actually produce um, electromagnetic fields that are harmful for our bodies. They use uh, oscillation mechanisms because oscill oscillations, like when you create an oscillation in a circuit, which is the best way to think of an oscillation is if you're at a light switch and you turn it on, off, on, off. That's an oscillation. And Tesla was very big into all of his circuits being oscillators because he said in his work, whenever you turn off the current, the whole universe goes to try and collapse into fill the gap. It's always, it's a collapse. So if you know how to create a resonant oscillation, then you're going to have more energy coming into the system than the apparent energy that it takes to run the system. Mm -hmm. And that's how our bodies work. I mean, there's no way that you can look at our bodies from a caloric perspective. And even if you were to like say that there's a transduction of the oxygen that we breathe into a certain amount of energy, we we expend so much more energy than what the dietary and oxygen inputs would give us. So where is this energy coming from? And then you look at the the shape of the heart and how the heart works. <laughs> and like if that was a pump, like how many you know hundreds of thousands of watts of energy a day it would take to push. This. So we know that the, the, the model that they give us is very insufficient because now with the advent of all these uh, robotics, the biggest problem they're having with robotics is you make a very complex robot. Well, you need a lot of battery to run that. <laughs> yeah. Like you essentially need a, like an EV car battery hooked on top of it. Now it's really heavy and now it doesn't even run half as long as it was supposed to. It's like, well, wait a minute, us humans actually from an energetic perspective, we are the over unity device. And the more, the more, I guess, coherent we make our field and the more coherent that we actually make our body, you actually can tap in to that centropic field easier and easier in a way in which like, you know, inputs aren't, there's not many inputs that are really needed, like not much at all. <laughs> I've been around some people that have very high level mastery and even a lot of the great athletes I've been around, like that played like, you know, very violent sports, even a lot of those people, like when I look back at it, they didn't require 
the level of inputs that you think they would. You know, the best athletes, like the ones when you looked at them, you're like, oh, wow, like the the proportions were right. The flexibility was right. Like you could just tell like they were fully embodied. And um, so there's something with this electrical field, like a bioelectrical field where there is always an over unity aspect. And you can't look at it from an entropic model. And this is where my line of study has taken me is making structures that are resonant. So I, I build domes, as you know, and I was working with uh, a woman that you might know of. Tan Have you ever heard of Tanya Harris? Hmm. She was an artist in the UK that about 12 years ago, she did a field study of seven different uh, cathedrals. And she found this system of being able to measure the base resonant frequency. I've heard of her work. Yes. And so she applied, once she, once she got the base resonant frequency of each cathedral, she applied it to cymatics. And the pattern that would come out equaled the, the rose window that was in the cathedral. And it's yeah. like mind blowing. You can go to her website now and it's just like, it's, it's stunning. And um, I was I helped her put a proposal together for the WEF, where not the best people. I don't necessarily agree with the WEF's plan, but um, I do like to help starving artists whenever I can. But we're coming up with a resonant structure um, where they could play tones and measure the heart rate variability of both the humans the the humans that were within the resonant structure and then they were going to measure something about plants i don't i don't know that much about um the anatomy of plants and then like cross correlate the data between what was happening with the plants and the humans in Whoa. in those structures <laughs> and what i were i know to measure that like what what was the device you don't know I, uh, you know, I know the heart rate variability devices, you know. Yeah, but were they plugging those into the plants or like what was? I read like probably about 15 years ago, the, uh, what's it called? The special secret life, life of, pl of plants. The secret life of plants. Yeah, Tompkin. I forget the author's name. They were using some sort of electrical devices to, to monitor yeah. the plants. He used a polygraph. So that, that might be what they were using as a yeah. polygraph. Because I actually did a tune-up on some plants that were hooked up to a polygraph, which was kind of cool. And Do tell. I was doing that. Well, so this was kind of wild. So there's a whole language of vibration that I've learned from the forks. Mm -hmm. that, and it's this very pure language. Like, vibes can't lie. And so whatever vibe you're giving off, and the forks are going to, like, nobody can hide anything from me. <laughs> like, I'm like, oh, I don't see what's going on in mm -hmm. your field. Like, truth is revealed. Uh, and so the, the language, it's, it's emotional, it's energetic, uh, our thought, every thought, every feeling like produces a kind of frequency signature. So I, I knew this really pretty well at this point. And I went to the University of Colorado with some friends and met one of their friends who was continuing this research with plants and polygraph machines. And he had two plants. One of them was an Amazonian medical plant. And one of them was like a little ornamental bamboo. And so the, the first one that I tuned was the Amazonian 
the medicine plant. So I come in and I find the edge of its field and I'm moving towards it, you know, reading its field, giving it a little tune up. And its little graph on the computer is going, it's going down. And so the researcher says to me, he said, that's a sign that the plant is relaxing. And I was like, okay, that's cool. So I, I, I finish up with my adjustment and, and, and pull away. And then for whatever weird reason, I decided to activate the fork and go back again. And as soon as I came back into its field again, the little thing, this little ticker started going up. It was like, what are you doing? I thought we were done. Like it was mm -hmm. really, I was like, you're right, plant, we're, we're done. Okay, well, you're good. And so then the next one that I worked on, the bamboo plant, I came in and I started listening to its field. I heard the frequency signature of fear. And I was like, I was like, oh gosh. I said, I think this plant is afraid. And the researcher said to me, I mean, there was actually a really good psychic here just last week. She works for like the Colorado police force. And she looked at that plant and said it was afraid. Mm. And I was like, yeah, it's definitely giving off the fear vibe. It wasn't digging, being prodded and poked and tuned. Whereas mm. the medicine plant was like, I can work with humans. You know, I got this going mm. on. Well, a really, really interesting thing. And I realized that like, of course, plants speak the same vibrational language because in that book the secret life of plants he talks about how he had the plant hooked up the polygraph and he had all he did was have a thought like an intention he's like oh i can burn it with a match right because he's yes. trying to get a rise out of the plants and, and so mm -hmm. all he does is have that thought and the plant goes ah! <laughs> it totally reacts to his thought right because mm -hmm. it sensed his intention to hurt it Yes. And, it read, and it read his vibrational language. So of course it makes sense that all of nature speaks the same vibrational language, that mm -hmm. our pets totally know your vibe. They get it, yeah. they rock it, because they have the same vibrational language in themselves. Mm -hmm. I, I totally get it. I, I got into harvesting bamboo when I lived in Central America. And it was very obvious that bamboo is this extremely sensitive organism. And it's a grass. So even though it's very sturdy and you can build with it, if you harvest it at the wrong time, it dies. And it, it gets very moldy and it's just not a good product. And so we applied the whole Victor Schauberger model of forestry to <laughs> Central America and waited for the lowest tide on the on the driest, you know, during the driest month. And so the tides would come in into that area twice a day. And so you would do it the first, 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 uh, the first low tide because the transpiration hadn't started yet and hadn't started pulling the moisture up into the, the cane. And we found if we practice that, you only got one time a year to cut, just one time. Wow. And if you did it right, and you did it before the sun took it, those canes didn't need any any of the copper sulfate, none of the borax, none of the treating agents that you had to do to make it a viable material. If wow. you can't, if you, and that was a way of like listening to the plants. That was like a way of like, okay, I totally respect you and I totally honor you and I'm not gonna rape and pillage but I am going to pull some of these canes because also when you would cut like that, they would, they would give you so much more 
like the rhizomes would shoot more and more canes every year, like an incredible amount. And we come to find that after we did that for a few years, we found that in Indonesia, they did the same thing that they would wait for the lowest tide at the, at the dry, uh, during the driest month of the year. And it was on what they call the, the harvest moon, the Minguante moon, which we're in right now. And it works. And it's like a way of like respecting the timing of things. Like I'm a big timing guy, <laughs> obviously being into astrology and astronomy, like that's like, Timing means a lot. Tempo means so much, like pacing and all that. And so it's just amazing that you could be there with a tuning fork and be with plants. Because I've been around shamans that they have that level of sympathetic resonance with especially the plants that they're cultivating for their medicines. Like when they're growing those plants for their medicines and they're with them, they have that 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 like they just they they're having a relationship with the plant and a lot of people in the west that's like a totally mind-blowing thing yeah but when you realize we speak the same language and you know there was research that came out recently and i'm sure this has come out before but somebody shared it with me uh, about how plants actually make sounds they 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 don't make it in the range that we can hear but that distressed plants actually make louder sounds and uh, I was getting ready to go to Peru, getting ready to go on a big trip. I was going to be gone for like three mm -hmm. weeks. And I had had a bunch of aloe plants and spider plants on my kitchen counter. And my aloe plants started to like turn into spider plants. They went from having thick leaves. They started getting skinny. And I'm like, oh, you're hanging out with the spider plants too much. I need to separate you. Mm -hmm. So I put all the spider plants in another room, except for one that was on another table. So it was all aloes in this one room now, this one spider plant by itself. And I was getting ready to leave and that spider plant made it so clear to me that it wanted to go in the other room with the other spider plants before I left. Like mm -hmm. I, I just walked past it and it was like, it was beaming so loud at me. It's like, put me with the other spider yeah. plants now. And I was like, okay, I hear you, I'll bring you in there. But you know, they, they, they just—they're communicating. They're yeah, communicating. they are. I I listened to this one herbalist, and this was like back in the day where I had to like download the podcasts, like there was no Wi-Fi or anything like that. And she was really amazing because she said she would never drive in cars or go in any tube of metal anymore because every time she did, she couldn't hear the plants anymore. And so she would get around on a motorcycle because that was open air for her. So the air, and you know, I know like when you travel in any metal box, you positively ionize and mm -hmm. plants in general are not that they're negatively ionized. So I was like that, I heard that. And at the time in my life, I didn't have a car. I was just riding around on a quad, you know, through the mountains of Costa Rica. And I was living an extremely natural life in, I was listening to her and I was like, you know what? That's so amazing. And so one day I was kind of bummed because I had, I had taken these palm trees from the coast and I brought them up to my, to my farm and I planted them and they weren't doing well. And I was kind of upset about it because I really wanted coconuts. And I was just like, man, I was just sitting between the two trees and I was just like, 
I just had the intention to help them. I was just like, man, I really, what can I do for you guys? Like what's going on? And it was like 4.30 in the morning, 4.45 in the morning. And I just heard this voice. It was like, water us from the top. And I was like, I had, of course, that, you know, North American mind go, you're crazy. <laughs> Initially, and then I was like, no, I'm going to listen to this. And I just kept listening. And it's just like, we don't get enough wind. Water us from the top. So then I started to spray them with my, with the hose and I had pretty good water pressure. And I, what I watched was the water made all the palm fronds shake like the palm fronds would do down at the beach. The palm fronds were always shaking down at the beach. So for like three years, I was watering them from the top. I stopped watering them from the bottom and they grew to be the coconut trees that fed my baby. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Like within like a few years, like I had these full on coconut producing coconut trees because all they wanted was their palm fronds to shake. And the and the the cut of the valley I was in, it didn't get enough wind to cause that. But watering, like spraying the water up and then having that trickle on them and having that shake like that, that made them very happy. Love that. That makes me cry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they were happy too, because like they they produced a lot of coconuts. Like and so my baby, my wife was producing probably about half the milk my baby needed. And we just supplemented with the coconut water, the people water. And she, I mean, she's a monster. She's awesome. No, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That's so such a perfect food, really, coconut water. It's a good oh, food. Yeah. And you like, I found like coconut fibers are like the best fiber in the world to build with, like in with cob construction and all the buildings I was building. It was like, I went through so many so many failures with like different natural fibers and when i found coconut fiber i was like eureka moment it was just awesome right and there's so much to be had as a waste product yeah 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 it's uh for a minute there i was gonna go into business because one of my uh clients she owned a coconut oil company and i had been testing for years i'd been testing the coconut shell so not the husk but the hard shell, I've been making these rocket mass heaters and rocket stoves because I lived out in the jungle, but all the wood's wet because it's the rainforest. And so I got into making these rocket mass heaters because they burn very efficiently and I could use other fuel sources. And then I was like, I always had coconut milk. I made my own coconut oil. I did all that type of stuff. And so I had tons of coconut shells and I was like, huh, by weight, this is 60% oil. So I started crushing them. And the first time I ran that in my rocket stove, I literally burnt a hole through an all steel grate. It was like, it's, I think it's the first video I ever put up on YouTube. <laughs> it burned that yeah. hot and fast. It was over 2000 degrees. It was, a blue, it, it was a blue flame. It literally burnt the whole inside out. And then it set my dome on fire because I had an earthen dome and then over it, I did a ferro cement roof, but I had no idea that the flame was going to shoot up so high. And so it shot up and the ferro cement had a nylon weave in it and all that nylon caught on fire. <laughs> oh my God. 
<laughs> but to me, I was just like success. Like I had finally found a fuel. And so I remember telling my client, I was like, by far, because in Indonesia, and I think I'm forgetting what, I think it's the Philippines that produces the most, of, the majority of all the coconut oil. They just have these massive pits of coconut shell and they just lighted them on fire. They don't use them. And I'm like, no, we need to make those into pellets. And so in researching doing that, it was going to be like a $2 million investment. But the crazy thing to do it was that we would have had to get the product out and on the shelf within 12 months because everything in Asia gets stolen. So if they would have found out that we were doing this, like, like within a year, we would have had 12 competitors that would have priced us out. And so I was like, it's not worth the stress. <laughs> it's, it's, it, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. So, um, but it was really cool to get the phenomenology of the coconut. And it was like the coconut tree was like the ultimate giver. It's just this amazing, it's an amazing being like their, their presence. I grew up in South Florida. So I was around like Royal palms, not so much like coconut palms. And they just, they're just a stunning, stunning being. Like they, they have, a, at least to me, they have a, like a very regal presence to them. And it's, it's something that if I could have it here in Missouri, I would definitely make it happen. <laughs> if I could have it here in Vermont, I would too. <laughs> Luckily, I get to live in Jamaica part of the year, so I get to enjoy them down there. But I didn't know that about the coconut shells being a great fuel source. So that was it, really well, you felt how hard the shells are, right? Yeah, they're dense. They're like, they're like indestructible. Like, yeah. And they're a dome. Like, they're a little mini dome too. So like a lot of times you can see like you can polish them up so they almost look like ebony you know they almost have that ebony coloration there's a wood there called pehibaye which is a peach palm wood and i was going to make flooring out of that and self flooring and becoming a, a flooring mogul but that was a huge crash and burn <laughs> but either way it was like a very similar coloration it looked like ebony like with a little white speckle in it and it's just like an exceptionally hard wood but it's very difficult wood because you'll like this because this is probably why the bamboo is scared. Bamboo loves to have friends around. Like if, if the bamboo isn't in a clump or it's not running, like if it's not around other bamboos, it, it, it doesn't like being alone. And that's probably why the bamboo is scared. And bamboo in nature is, it's essentially a very long cylinder, right? It's a very long antenna and like the silica fibers that run run the entire length of the bamboo so you could you imagine something that's like a hundred feet long one fiber and it's bamboo is very similar to palm in the sense that the outside of the of the organism is the hardest part it's the exoskeleton it's very interesting too because they're both ruled by the crab or cancer, <laughs> which has the exos exoskeleton. Mm -hmm. But as you go inside, they go from it starts hard on the outside and it gets softer and softer as you get to the middle, and then the middle is essentially hollow. It's really hollow on bamboo, but with palm, the what we call the mancha, the very center of it, is essentially just this water. It's like 
and they're in if in permaculture and biodynamics they're considered uh, bio accumulators so I've if you that before yeah if you ever want more life on your farm you you plant palms and in bamboo like they just everything comes and it's because there are these long antennas there are these long straws and just like we were talking about with our own biofield anatomy where we had the syntropic, you know, tether coming down the center, they have the same thing in spades. You can see it from the top. Like what, if you're to look down, like it's just like, it's literally like this etheric line coming down through them and then planting that into the ground. Yeah, that makes sense. And they it's grow awesome. so, and they grow so abundantly too, right? When they grow healthy, they grow so fast. They're awesome. It's one of the, I feel so fortunate that I got a good 15 years with bamboo, like to really, because I, I mean, as a kid growing up in Florida, I was always playing with sticks outside. Like we had all these tropical plants that you can make sticks and all of us boys, we'd beat the hell out of each other and build forts. And, you know, boys are always playing with sticks. And then when I was there, I was just like a big boy playing with the really big sticks. It was just like, whoa, this stick is a hundred feet long. Let's do it. It's a lot of fun. What made you leave Costa Rica and move to Missouri? Costa Rica got really funky with COVID. And so um, the best way I could say it was, or the way, best way I can say it is, that I under I finally was real about my my situation there. So it's a socialist country. It was the third socialist country that I had lived in, and I'd been trying to find out about property rights for four years. And I had a bunch of lawyers that were my my friends and clients so people that i was talking to off off record and it was like there's no way i can actually have property rights here and my wife and i we've been studying the law now for nine years and in fact that we're we're working on our our law library right now <laughs> and a big thing for me is human rights start with property rights and so I had successively I had three different sets of friends have their farms stolen from them by by the lawyers that they that they hired. What? <laughs> really? Yeah. So there would be something quote unquote illegal that would happen. There you're guilty until proven otherwise, right? So when you're guilty until proven otherwise, your assets are are frozen. And then what I saw with the the scam with COVID was occurring was one, I I never got along with the Latin culture, the Latin uh it's like a cuck culture. Cause in Latin America, the women really run everything. And the way the women were running it in the in the region I was in was whatever the TV said was real. So men that were under that I had hired and I had like really given them a really good living 
they to man to man, mano y mano, we would have a great relationship. The second that they would go home, the men would then be like, well, I got to do this for my family. I got to do this for my family. So she's, my wife says this, we got to do this. And all the men were doing that around the COVID spell because the women would be home listening to like all the fear mongering and the men would be working because I have a construction company and I just watched everybody got turned on each other. So I was like, oh, all the social equity that I thought I built up here is actually a facade. And I'm seeing that I don't really have property rights. I, I'm, and I never felt comfortable, like I said, with the Latino culture. I, 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 even as a Floridian growing up, like I was always around Latins. And even as a kid, like I didn't get along with it back then. <laughs> And so I just had to had to have this like real moment with myself of being like, okay, is this, do I still have the rose colored glasses on? Am I living the projection of what I want it to be? Or am I being real? And when I just took my rose colored glasses off, I'm like, I, this isn't our, this isn't the best place for my family. This isn't the best place for me. And then I also saw as a, somebody as a contractor there, I saw all the Agenda 21 laws being instituted. And I was just like, okay, the price of everything is quadrupled in the last couple of years. Uh, this country is like the first country to mandate, you know, five-year-olds getting the COVID vax. I'm like, the, the president of this country is totally in bed with the IMF. I'm like, and COVID to me was just a sign of war. Like to me, this was like, you know, uh, was it uh, silent weapons for quiet wars? You ever read that? I didn't read it, but I'm, I'm familiar. Yeah. with the. And so I was just like, oh, and I knew enough about history that you don't want to be a foreign national during a time of war. Mm -hmm. Like being a foreign, any foreign national in a time of war, your property gets taken. Like it just does. It gets confiscated. And I had three friends that I watched that happen to. So it was just like, wow. <clears throat> yeah. So I had a lot to lose. And in all honesty, I wanted my, I wanted to enter a culture where people liked defined boundaries. So this kind of gets back to your work. Because <laughs> so many of the people that move to the tropics um, a lot of time their field is so happy that it's warm just on a practical level, but they also lose their, their boundaries. They kind of lose, um, what has defined them. And especially in, in the area that <laughs> in the massage new age realm that I was in, in the, in that world of, uh, you know, I worked between 13 different healing retreat centers and probably about another 13 or so uh, ayahuasca retreat centers, that whole world of medicine work. Um, I was just done with having everybody be so permeable is the best way I could say it. 
and it's really kind of fun because here in in Missouri, it's a completely it's still rural. Like I still live in a rural environment. In fact, there's less population density here, but everybody's fields are very defined here. Like the men here are men. Like I, I actually don't feel like a, a man relative to like the men around here. Cause all the men here know how to hunt. They all know how to like, it's, it's just like a totally different experience of manhood here. Like in Costa Rica, they were like proud that they didn't have an army, like no military and like, you know, that. <laughs> and at the time I moved there, I was proud that I was identifying with that. But now like, I, I I understand nature much better now, and this was um, this was just a much healthier move for my family. Yeah, and you got friends like Marty and uh, Chance nearby, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're we're in like Podcaster Alley here. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> and those are definitely people with defined fields too. Yes. <laughs> yeah, in fact, uh, it's Marty's birthday today. We're going to leave here in about 20 minutes to go have a birthday party with him. Oh, yay. Well, you can tell him I say hi. I will. I will. But the it, it, it's it's fun being also in a place where winter comes. So, um, and the reason why that is, is because, you know, that's something that you and I were speaking about before is that there is a timing and there is seasons to life. And the cool thing that I like about winter is that there is, as Schauberger would say, there's like a condensing of energy that occurs. And in the tropics, I noticed that there's, there's so much diffusion. Like the light is diffuse. Like it might be, it might be hot, but it's a diffuse type of of heat. Whereas here, I'm noticing all like the sharper notes of life. Like there's a there there's a sharpness as you go north in the light, in the temperatures, and so that's kind of fun for me to experience again because I had been in the tropics for so long. Yeah, I often wonder why I live in Vermont, especially this time of year, really dead of winter. And uh, I also live in Jamaica, but I spent a whole year in Jamaica. I spent all of 2020 there. And mm -hmm. I was really, really ready to come back to, you know, part of it's familiar, right? This, like, because Jamaica is a coral island, uh, the, and Vermont is like a granite kind of state. I found myself craving the rocks underneath yes. my feet, which I was like, what a weird thing to be craving. But mm -hmm. I really missed like the, the earth that I'm accustomed to and, and mm -hmm. the feeling that it engenders. So what what's your if you don't mind me asking, what is your birthday? Uh, October 15th. Ah, OK, so. Man, the energetic pattern. So, so you'll, you'll like this. This is like a very like high level phenomenological energetic thing. So in the tropics, especially in Central America, you're essentially on this like lahar of paramag paramagnetic material. You're on a bunch of bauxite clay and paramagnetism is always 
the way you can think of a paramagnetic material is it's resistant to a magnetic field. So it's sort of chaotic. It's the energy of the moon. So if I used to do these full moon hikes and like, I remember I didn't really identify with what a lot of people were saying about, oh, how wonderful the moonlight feels and all that. Cause I would go on these full moon hikes down to the waterfalls. And I was just like, I felt such an agitation from it. And it, it felt chaotic. It felt like, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the researcher, Sophia Smallstorm. Have you ever heard of her? Oh, you would love her. She's incredible. Um, it's a septic light. So if the sun is an antiseptic light, which it, it's, it's just essentially oxidizing whatever it touches, then the moon is an antiseptic light. And the way my body would interpret that was almost like, it's almost like my skin would be like being pulled off of me. And I found for years and years and years, the only way I could ground during massage there was if I was building cob houses. Like I would literally have my feet in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pounds of dirt every day and like working my feet out to be able to find ground. So I went to go visit a friend in New York and I'm on limestone and I'm like, and I could hear the ground. I was like, I didn't know what it was I was hearing. I was like, what is that? And then I went to um, this area of Arkansas, which is like on these like incredible limestone areas. And I was just like, the ground is like, I can hear ground. And it was just like, my field was just clean. Like it was just clean. And so what I find is like for people that have, that have rulership in air, if you're in a paramagnetic area, um, it will, the, the diffuseness of a paramagnetic area will have, especially with somebody that has a mind like yours, that is like, the way I read you is distinct. Like you have like a, a, a distinction and like a very, like you have a sharper edge, even though you, you have a rulership in air, if that makes any sense. Well, right, it, this is what I said to you the other day, I have a Sagittarius rising. So that's kind of like, like that, that edge that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's wonderful. And what I find with clients too, is like, I find like the whole astro cartography thing is a real thing. Like where you are, like there is a resonant pattern. I mean, like you're just saying, like you're reading fields of, of living beings. <laughs> What is this thing that we're actually on, right? <laughs> like I, I douse because I build, and so like I'm finding the dragon pass and the ley lines and the water, the underwater lines, and feeling the the those like subtle vibrant. At least like sometimes you just check in, and the land is like, uh, no, <laughs> go. So there's um. It's I, I don't what I'm trying to say is I'm not surprised that you would one go back to Vermont because of the familiarity, but also that actually being on stone. Yeah. That's what I was craving it. I was like, I need stone under my feet. 
I craved it like deeply. It, yeah, yeah. it really surprised me. Like, I, you know, there was a lot of things I missed about, about Vermont, but that was the most profound was the feeling that I needed rock under my feet. That's and, great. Is it, is that a continual thing for you? Like, do you feel that? Um, well, you know, when I have it, I take it for granted. It was just almost a whole, it was a whole year without it. And then mm -hmm. I think it took around 10 or 11 months for, for me to start to crave it, to really mm -hmm. crave it. You know, I, I, I spent years working in the food business in the restaurant business. So I never had food fantasies right, ever because mm -hmm. I was always surrounded by food. And then uh, and then I had a job working doing landscaping and gardening. And it was the first time that I hadn't been because I started waitressing when I was 16. So I hadn't been around food. And all of a sudden, I'm like, I started having food fantasies. I'm like, I didn't even know that you could have a food fantasy. <laughs> like I never even had an opportunity to have a food fantasy ever. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was like that, like I was having like, you know, Vermont rock under my feet <laughs> fantasies. And I had no idea that it was, um, that I was missing it, that I needed it, you know, that that was mm -hmm. part of what keeps me healthy. I mean, I'm an outdoors person, I'm not outside as much as I can be. So, mm -hmm. and, and I thought, oh, being in Jamaica, you know, it's sunny <laughs> in the ocean and that's great. Um, but I just found that, a a steady dose of it. I, I definitely think that our bodies are attuned to the landscapes that we grew up in, right? We're connected to them. We're woven into them. I would agree. I would agree. There's really, there's a lot of power of that in the law too. <laughs> there's something to it that's uh, pretty interesting. Well, Eileen, this has been such a pleasure. I feel like this is the start of a, a bunch of uh, conversations that we're going to have ongoing as our friendship grows. And um I just have to say, I've been an admirer from a distance for a long time, and I'm so happy that we could uh, talk on this level. Yeah, we have so many things in common, right? So many yes. sort of geeky things that uh, roads we've gone down that uh, a lot of people don't go down these roads. So it's always fun to find a fellow uh, rabbit hole diver who's been in a lot of the same places and had a lot of the same kinds of thoughts. So, a yeah. fellow natural philosopher. Yeah, Yay. fellow natural philosopher. That'd be great. Well, we maybe should get a three-way with Chance again sometime because that was fun. He's always fun to talk to. He is, he, he is so much fun. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I have to go bust his balls a little bit. So, I'll, 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 I'll do that for you. <laughs> All right. Well, be... you have a great time tonight. Say hi to everybody, and I look forward to when we speak next. That sounds great. See you soon, Eileen. See you soon. You ought to know Well now you You ought to know give it up for Eileen Yukusik. She is without peer in my from my perspective. Somebody that's actually practicing and teaching other practitioners biofield tuning at the level that she is, she's kind of proving to us through 
tons and tons of evidence with other people that we are vibrational entities first. What are the implications of that? So you, you're right now, if you're hearing me, obviously you're hearing a vibration and I believe it's the tympanic membrane in your ear is vibrating and then your nerve, whatever the, the, uh, the hearing nerve is then transduces that vibration into some auditory thing that you hear. You're essentially experiencing me as a pressure wave. If you're watching this and hearing me, then you have the secondary aspect of there being this light frequency that is supposedly emanating at you. And then there is this image that appears. Now, as I record this, there is a continuity that I call Christopher Gardner. And this continuity has a body and it's very consistent. And this continuity will last for however long God wants it to last. But who we actually are as the witnessing awareness, that which sponsors this vibrational patterning, is kind of being seen to be universal. One might say Catholic. <laughs> um, and the work that Eileen McCusick is doing, the work that Chance Garten's doing, all the biofield tuners that are out there, where in consciousness, they can tune into a vibrational pattern at a distance where they're not even in your local environment. That's because what does local even mean? What is that? What is that construct? How is it possible that this can actually be occurring? Now, you can look at it from the billiard ball perspective of, okay, you know, there's atoms and they kind of bounce off of each other. And, you know, somehow, some way there's an efficiency. There isn't a loss of energy over distance and time. And if she's a thousand miles away from you, it doesn't matter. None of that's true. You are the axis mundi. This is a heresy to say, <laughs> but it, it's in alignment with what Jesus said, um, that the 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 kingdom of heaven is within you and your axis mundi your center of perception is the center of your known universe so when you have the intention to work with somebody it doesn't matter the distance that they're at on the intentional plane and the causal plane your energy is moving out and there is no distance now, depending on how you see yourself and how you've been conditioned, there might be a lag time <laughs> with what's reflected back to you. But there are certain levels of mastery where that lag time is very short. So hopefully what you're seeing here with the progression of what these podcasts have been, and like when you hear somebody of Eileen McCusick's stature, when she can tell you that she's worked with thousands of people, helped in a normal like you don't grow a business to the extent that she does unless you're actually effective at what you do <laughs> like you there wouldn't you wouldn't get repeat customers you would there would only be a limited uh base of people that you could work with if she's 
has full-time staff and she's seeing this many people and training this many people, it means that there's something to it. The podcast this season, the second season has really shown, especially in the latter part here, that we are the body electric. Like I believe, yes, one of our books is called Electric Body, Electric Health. Our higher notes in our consciousness are these notes of uh, Uranus, the exalted Mercury, which is electric. And this is the spark. We've heard this. <laughs> when, when the body uh, no longer uh, is living, the spark has left, right? The spark of what? The spark of this electricity, this divine in initiatory spark. So we are electric. And the pressure mediation between the ether medium, and let's just say the more inertial medium of, of what we call matter, is dielectric. And we live on this massive plane of uh, the dielectric plane. And whether we go to the perimeter above us, or we go from a macro perspective, or we go to the perimeter at the micro level, those, it, you go from the physical to the metaphysical, and we're in this nice diamond bubble, as uh, Martin Liebke would, would say, of, of, you know, we've heard it, you know, the atomists talk about the Goldilocks zone. Well, we are in the spiritual Goldilocks zone where we get to experience time. And by being able to experience time, we get to experience space. But remember, we're in this world. We are not of it. Our nature is instantaneous. And so read Tuning the Human Biofield. Read the Body Electric. Go to the to Eileen McCusick's uh, website, biofieldtuning.com. You know, check out some of these um, other books like the Holographic Universe. Um, just, just understand that the medium that we're in is a little bit pliable. You know, <laughs> as a little monk child in the Matrix said, "There is no spoon." What did that actually mean? Like when when they were bending the spoon. I know it's a movie. I know it's an analogy, but. How is it some of us can actually change the chemtrails in the sky? How is it that we can tune in to the sun and have the sun peek through a supposedly engineered sky? How does that happen? How is it that some people actually consistently get what they call in? And how is it that other people don't? Um, there's... There's a lot going on in this wonderful Leela that we're playing in. And people like Eileen Nikusik, she's she's been able to share with us the, at least the vibrational side of it. So this has been a joy. And I have to say, she's very open-minded. We are I'm talking to her about Ophiuchus, the 13th, the exalted Scorpio, and she seems to be digging it. So uh, check out, I believe every Sunday on YouTube, she does a little presentation. So 
when you're not listening to my man, Marty Leeds, you can listen to her. So the next pod that we have on, on the docket is um, awesome. <laughs> it's, uh, it's pretty much going to wrap up this series of five, uh, uh, five deep hitting podcasts that started with Tom Sherman. You know, we had the exploration into the rhythm of light. And today we had the exploration into the rhythm of sound. And now the next um, podcast that we're doing, um, we're going to get more into the, the collective patterning that has been happening on a very earnest level with those that uh, essentially were made the money system, made the monetary system. So Professor Longo and I talked about the Byzantine Empire and how the people that had the, the thousand year glory that we are told them in the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages <laughs> didn't exist. It just didn't exist for Western Europe. But all this knowledge was hidden in the language of the birds by the alchemists. And as they were venturing back into the Americas, and I'm going to say back into the Americas, it wasn't a, it wasn't a first go of it. Um, as they were venturing back, they decided that they were going to change a few different frequencies because the frequency by changing music, by changing the monetary system, by changing these frequencies, you change the consciousness of people. And as you've heard me say before, I will always repeat Schauberger in this regard. He said, you can tell the consciousness of a civilization by the quality of the water, of the music, and the forests. And one of the tenets of scalar physics is that when you want a specific result, you have to engineer the environment. So... The next podcast, um, Stephanie McPeak Peterson and I are going to get into how did these English colonialists actually do that in a way that nobody knew <laughs> by using the language of the birds. And uh, when I say nobody, I mean none of the people in the mundane universe. Um, when you see the level of engineering that's been going on, it's pretty, pretty uh there, let's let's just say that there are people out there that are more than willing to engineer your life for you if you're not willing to engineer your own life. So take the reins, if you know what I mean. So thank you again for for coming to the podcast. Um, I've really been enjoying myself. I've been inspired to make a movie, <laughs> which I'm I'm going to call the Perimeter, and it's probably going to be. Uh, something I'm going to release on YouTube, and it um, after after seeing what David Lapointe has put out, I've been a student of his for ten years, um, and then also just seeing talking to a bunch of my cohorts at Anarchapoco, it's time. It's time to do this. I'm I'm very excited. So thank you all for your support. 
please go to Topher HQ if you want to donate. That helps. Um, I'm also doing a lot of Celestic profiles, again, for people. So if you want to go ahead and kind of see your macro impression through the luminaries, I'm here for you for that. And uh, share the podcast. If you just share this with a couple people, um, that helps the echo chamber grow a little bit. And uh, we're, we're, we're really spreading hope. <laughs> There's so much goodness that's happening right now. And um, I'm very happy that we're all on this trip together. So I look forward to hearing from you and I will see you guys on the flip side.